was this morning, as we continue our series of origins here of Genesis 1, 1 through uh, 11, I have two thoughts for us to consider as we wrap up our uh, first chapter. So as we wrap up chapter 1 in what has been read, I think, consecutively for three or more weeks, the section of 26 through 31, we will actually conclude it this morning with this morning's sermon. That is, so we'll look at verses 26 through 31 as has been read. And I have two thoughts um, for us this morning. Uh, Two simple things, and I'm going to give them to you this time up front so you can just track with me uh, as we develop them. But these two thoughts that will conclude chapter 1, our study of Genesis thus far, is simply this. Number one, the commandment of God in the exercising of dominion. And again, it has immediate implications for us this morning. And we oftentimes think of it in context here in Genesis 1 as an application to Adam and Eve at the very beginning of origins and their need to or their ability to exercise dominion. But as I hope to show you this morning, that it is relevant and immediate for us as we see it in the text. And again, that is point number one will just simply be the commandment of God in exercising uh, dominion. And number two, the blessing of God in being fruitful and multiplying. So the commandment of God in the exercising of dominion and the blessing of God in being fruitful and multiplying. Where we begin with the commandment of God in the text is where we begin is first the statement in the text is very clear of being fruitful and, and, and multiplying. And as we look at the text, we begin to understand that this command to exercise dominion uh, given to man is a sense of a kinship between man and animal. So to understand the the command to exercise dominion, we first note that there is a sense of kinship between man and animal. Again, maybe perhaps in our culture we overemphasize the idea of kinship with our animals. Uh, Oftentimes people refer to them anthropomorphically, anthropomythically. Um, that is, they simply refer to them as animals as they were children, right? Your, your dog's your grandchild, your pets are your children, et cetera, et cetera. I won't look at anyone in particular. I don't know how you refer, really, I don't know how anyone here refers their animals, but perhaps uh, you do or don't. But the idea of referring to animals in this sense of kinship is probably not a problem for us as much as Um, we recognize it maybe too much. Much has been made recently of, I don't know if, uh, again, the politics of everyone in here, but much has been made recently, if you've noticed in media, much has been made about Donald Trump and uh, what it means for him as a person that he expressly doesn't like dogs. And we're supposed to understand by not liking dogs, it says a lot about a person. It is interesting, so much has been made about kinship, though, in presidential dogs. And and, and volumes have been written about the relationship of presidents and their dogs, dogs at the White House and what it means for them. So much so, um, I noticed in in one article reading about this that President Woodrow Wilson once commented about this sense of kinship between animal or the White House dogs and, and, and man. That is this kinship between animal and men. He said... If a dog will not come to you after he has looked you in the face, you ought to go home and examine your conscience. (laughs) 
this sense of a shared kinship and a linkage between the way an animal looks at a man and his bond between a man and his dog or the idea of a man and his horse that he would ride into battle that we hear about in history. There is this sense of the command of God in exercising dominion that there is a sense of kinship shared between man and animal. But, but more than the idea of history or the way that people report on their animals or the way that they love their animals, there's a linkage here in the text that is important for us to notice. Look in verse 22 at the linkage between um, uh, man and animal in the sense of kinship. And God blessed them, that is, that is animal life here, and, and he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then look down at verse 28. So the very first time in the text that animal, uh, the, the comment to be fruitful and multiply is made is verse 22 to the animals. And then I'm building this bridge between kinship to the idea of shared express command. Verse 28. So to the animals in 22 and to man in 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So if you look at the link here in the text, you notice the direct command of God to be fruitful and multiply is exactly the same among animals, fish, birds, and humans. And it's this shared sense of responsibility, this shared sense of obedience to God wherein we find a certain type of kinship that is shared between man and animal through a combined and a sense of obligation and obedience through being equipped with reproductive biology and being able and then being commanded, whether by instinct or by volition. There's an express command between animal life and human life to be productive and to fill the earth. And so there is this sense of kinship that we share between animal life and human life. And as I said to you, it is in small little bits and ways it is seen or mirrored as we treat our pets or as we read about unique animals throughout history or the way we appreciate looking at the nobility of the creatures, there's a sense of kinship. But important to notice in the text as well, as we share this sense of kinship, there is an outstanding difference between man and animal as well. And, and this is critical to us as we, as we think about anthropology, as we think about you and I, what it means to be human as we're covering in origins. What does it mean to be man? What does it man mean to be woman? What does it mean to be a human being? While there is, yes, clearly a kinship between animal life and human life, there is some sense of bond. There is an outstanding difference between man and animal. And why is that so important that we must recognize? Because man is not a higher form of animal life. You, you see, it, there, there isn't a direct link in the evolutionary chain between man and animal. That, that, that they're essentially the same thing, or, or men, man is animal, only a higher form. There isn't. There's a bond or a kinship, but there's not a linkage. Man is not a higher form of animal 
he is created distinctly apart from animal. This we confess, and this we believe, as taught to us from the text. Look at the passage where we've already noted. Look at verse 21, just for a sense of how this is important to recognize this very clear distinction. Though there is a kinship that we do share and recognize and ought to honor, there is a clear distinction. Look in verse 21 how we see that distinction immediately. So, verse 21, so God created every living creature that moves. That, that, that's a simple summary. If we go through, God created the great sea creatures and every creature swarms and so on and so forth. If you just look at verse 21 real quickly, you just say, so God created every living creature that moves. Now look over as to where he speaks of man in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so, again, you see that animal life throughout the passages, animal life is created by the direct word of God. Let there be animals. We're going to create animals. Boom, there's animals. But then when you get to man, remember we covered, there's a slowing down of the text, a slowing down to say, shh, deliberate. Let us make man in our image. Again, so there's a distinction right then and there in the text that we recognize about one another as we consider who each other are, who we are as a human being, what it means for human beings to flourish. We recognize immediately that there's a dignity about man that is not given to the animals. And we first see this in the passage where God says, let us make that sense of divine deliberation. Animals are simply created. Man is brought about through divine deliberation. The pause, the slowdown in the passage. Whoa, let let us make man. As a reader, again, we don't have time to go through the passage and the cadence of it, but God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so, God said, and it was so, God said, and it was so. And it's rapidly unfolding. And then the whole grammar changes. Let us make man. How so? In our image. What does that exactly mean? After our likeness. That is never said about the animals, but only man is made in the image of God. And then look over in verse 2-7, where we see this important, outstanding difference between animal life and human beings. And and that's in verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And we covered this last week mainly that his soul, that is the soul of every woman in here, the soul of every man in here, soul of every child in here, is directly given him through God. So when we consider the uniqueness then of of mankind, of you and I among the creatures of the earth, we see principally two things. We see, number one, with your body, that is, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, then God formed the man of the dust of the ground. So that what is the uniqueness of man? But that with his body, your, your body, you and I, individual human beings, with the body, we stand in fellowship to the earth. There's an earthiness about us 
there's an earthy quality to us. There is a connectedness to all that is on the earth. There, there is a sense of kinship, bond, care, and concern that is to be shared among creatures of the earth. Man is an earthy vessel in the body. In his body, your body, you stand in fellowship with the earth and with your spirit. That is, as God then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life with your spirit, which is directly, as you see here, from above. You are related to heaven in a unique way that animals are not. You're not just a higher form. You're distinctly and wonderfully made. A soul-filled individual that doesn't make you otherworldly or need to escape the world you're in, but a sense of stewardship and appreciation and cultivation of the earth you're a part of. A certain sense of kinship to animal life. There's an earthiness to mankind, but indeed he is distinctly and wonderfully created of God and given a soul that will last forever. So we are both, as you see in the passage, from the ground we were taken and then you see in the curse, later in chapter 3, we'll get there, where the, where the curse actually falls upon the earth, upon the ground. And you find it shares in your bondage. And then the word of, you're going to go back to the ground that you were taken from. For essentially your dust, your frame, your body is an earthen vessel. And yet it's this unique God-given quality of both a body as a vessel and a soul for immortality that gives mankind, you and I, a special position among all the creatures. And it's this special, cre- this special relationship that you and I possess to all other creatures where it is expressed by God in the text. If you look carefully, look at um, where, where, he, where God commissions them uh, and he blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And then notice what he says about all other animal life to men and to women. What he says, subdue it and exercise dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, given your sense of body and, and, and soul, rationality and giftedness and skill, you are given the direct command from God to exercise that dominion justly over all of creation. There's an important word here for us to consider, again, in that sense of kinship and bond that we share to animal life. This involves this sense of God saying to you, man and woman, who are distinctly made, not simply a part of a linkage of evolutionary biological movements, but a distinction and a nobility placed upon you, so also your stewardship. Exercise dominion, exercise rule over all of creation. And with it comes the ethical burden to do so well and to do so wisely. Most oftentimes when we speak about um, creational care, or creational stewardship. It's divided among political lines. 
And for a number of reasons, right? There's a ton of reasons that are all hyperlinked. And so when you move one piece, it affects another. And so you can't move this piece and don't want to surrender it because if you move that and surrender that piece, they're going to swing back over on you this side and call you in, so kiss it here, so, so on and so forth. So everything's so tightly guarded. So you can either talk about this item that works for you or you can't talk about it because it doesn't work for you. And, and oftentimes it ends up being creation care, uh, or the environment that tends to be this, this, this more political uh, uh, element uh, and divide between men and women along political lines of creational care. But if we just step back and stop using it as a power tool or a leveraging technique in the rhetoric uh, of politics, we see here from the text that there is a burden, that there is a stewardship given to us, even more so as believers, to some measure, something measurable in your life that displays your sense of just exercising of rule over creation, some measure of accountability to creational care. Part of this, again, tends to... um, be along political lines, and I certainly don't mean it that way. As you know, here at Redeemer, we, we don't get involved um, discussing a lot of political topics, um, and so I don't mean it in that way at all, and I, I, I wouldn't venture out to tell you what to do with it. But I would say that the clear implication from the text involves the ethical treatment of animals. And, and you know, what does that mean? Um, it can mean a, a lot of things, right? Uh, ethical treatment, I, I've given some thought most recently, probably in the last like eight months in my mind, uh, ethical treatment of animals. I, I read a book that gave me some measure of uh, you know, persuasion to me about uh, uh, animals we consume and eat based on uh, who grows them and how in some measure of ethical treatment. Um, one, uh, the, one of the comments in the book said something to the effect, if they treat the animals like this, uh, if they view animal life like this, then imagine how they view you who consumes it. Um, So there is maybe some question there to consider uh, the ethical treatment of animal and the consumption thereof. Do we view animal life as simply utilitarian? Or is there some sense of nobility and dignity that ought to be recognized? What does that mean for economics? So on and so forth. And obviously, I'm no expert in all those areas. But there is a clear word here to exercise rule doesn't mean to dominate simply for our purposes of excellence, but some measure of humility and order that recognizes the nobility of a creature. For us, um, uh, one piece of application here for us, Adri and I, I can say this because my wife and kids are gone, so now you, know, you, you can speak about your children when they're gone a lot easier than... Whenever I say something, and it makes sense to say it, I think, and I say, well, I was talking to one of my children. They all quiz me afterwards, or they, they want to talk about it some more. Uh, so I, I don't want to give them any sense of star power. But um, the, I know that was me. I asked you that, or whatever those things are. Um, but they're gone. So I can say, um, it, it, with, with our family, uh, as we had little ones, right off the bat, we never let them kill anything without a purpose and cause. I mean, like, anything. Um, There's some sense of reverence that ought to be cultivated for life. Um, And and whether that that you, you, you know, there's a fly outside, and and kids, I'll put it in roly-polies, kids love to destroy those things. Uh, they're, they're, they're helpless, they curl up in your hand, they're abundant, 
easily found under rocks. So it's natural, like, well, then what we ought to do with it? Let's kill it. Um, no, don't. There's no reason to, right? And this sense of reverence for, for God ordaining these animals, the, the, these bugs, and, and, and these ecosystems, and these biospheres that we ought to be good stewards of. Because we exercise dominion over them. And we ought to do it in a just manner. And we ought to teach our children from day one. You don't need to go out of your way to step on that ant. Let it live. And it might be something small, but it translates into things bigger about how then you treat human beings. What do you think about abortion? How, how did you get to this position? Did, did, did you prize life way back here? Do you prize life that is given, that is gifted of the creator? Do you prize it? Do you care about it? Do you learn of it? Do you see its nobility? Or do you see it simply as a means to your excellency? Well, just, just let us be a consumer culture that creates these animals to simply be for our intended end and purposes with zero dignity in between. Raise them, let them sit on cement, chop them just so we can eat with our friends. Is that reasonable? Again, I, I don't want to wander too far. Just we ought to be mindful of creational care in the sense of reverence for all created life, both great and small. Last comment, how much more for human life? That has to be a big deal. But again, certainly at the point of creation, I think what's staggering about this, um, the thought, uh, and now ours is, is much different than what we're reading here in the text, but if you consider Adam and Eve together, Certainly, we'd have to argue at this point when he makes Adam in his own image, when that is when verse 27 and 26, when God just overwhelmingly says, verse 26, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. How are we going to make him? Verse 27, in our image, in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them in his image. We have to sense with Adam and Eve, in order to be those people in verse 28 who exercise dominion over the entire created earth, we have to see that with Adam and Eve, there was an enlightened sense of reason, justice, and wisdom given to them. Can you imagine if we embrace this text, indeed through faith, the magnitude of Adam and Eve being told, exercise dominion over the earth? Stagger. And Luther comments on it. He says this, quote, who can conceive to the earth the earth. Well, well, who is the earth? And you look, fill the waters and the seas. Eve, that Adam and Eve had insight into all dispositions of all animals, into their care. Concluding thought from Luther. This knowledge of nature in this life. In relation to Adam and Eve's creational care. I watched an interview there, except a little bit of context. The idea is he, he is metropolitan. Politanized, I think, exactly the stream of thought of how exactly we got there. But in the course of the interview, something came out, some scenario about a rodent. Utterly terrorized by uh, rodents of any kind. It was so weird. I, I told Adrian, I said, do you see that, though? What a rodent has that is dignified? I'm sure I'm, I mean, a raccoon. Uh, 
how far we have structured it and the way that the ecosystems work around us, we're so sanitized from it. We simply, it was probably with your age, but uh, seriously, ordering groceries and creatureliness, we're so sanitized, we simply order things on the internet and we squash about to have children or do have children. Are you cultivating a love of creation? Your attention to the second portion, again, from the commandment of God to exercise a justice. But I want to draw your attention, as I said, to the second portion of our time together, and that is the blessing of God. Blessed them. That is um, who, verse 27, the male and the female. Uh, the, the, and said to them, so he blessed them, and this is what it contained. This is the saying of the blessing. Be human being, you are endowed by God, the creator, essentially in this blessing, that you, man, and you, woman, that together, necessary rationality, how can I think, how can you think, how can I help you to think better, how can you help me to think better, in this blessing. We are given the ability to imitate what will last forever. We now are given, by God, in the blessing, the ability to imitate, through this blessing, by creating new life, we have the ability to do so. In the, have you thought, um, no matter where you're at, on, on the parenting spectrum, well, he made them a female, you're a woman, and have you thought about him then produced, to then in union, uh, to, to be fruitful, and to this angle, right? It's awesome to think, total means of God. Like, like, for me, it's, I, I have four, four children, and it's not you, particular lives. It's not like I just had kids. Little lives that will last forever. You. Again, intercourse. Look at the text, Look, right? So, so they're created in his image, in our likeness, in our image, in our creation. And multiply. God equivocal. And again, if we look very carefully, and this woman, and I'm taking this man and this woman, and I'm blessing, be fruitful. I've equipped you to do so. And I've blessed you in your unions. Hate him through the creation of new life and the exercising of godly leadership. I want you men and women, please, each in their own thought, consider here, in this text, in this blessing, God is granting a special grace to men to be fathers of a godly type. You're a male. Created you in my image. And I've, and I've united you with you, female was in my image, and I've brought you together in union, and I've given you the ability in union to be fruitful together, and of that fruitfulness, see its multiplication. And the stewardship that comes with it is to be a godly household that raises godly offspring. There is here a special grace given to women to be mothers. A special blessing. 
given to fathers or given to men to be fathers. And this being fruitful and multiplying blessing. From this passage moving forward, on and on, Scripture's emphasis is that children is a direct blessing of God. A text that you all know well. But emphasizes again this sense of, of, of just, the, the, you, you, sure, you have the ability in union to be, to be, to be fruitful. That you, you have the ability to, 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 to uh, ha- have sex. You have the ability biologically. You, you've been equipped physiologically to do so. And, and God then can bless that with multiplication. And seeing a little image bearer. But there is with that ability a great stewardship that comes. That you raise them and cultivate their lives and their hearts to love you and to love God. That has to be your business. If something isn't going to get done around the house, right, at some point, either male or female, whatever's going on, things are going to get done. Because there's a situation here with, like, you know, the little lives in the house. You, you, you've got to think that issue with the little ones in the house is more important than the item on your to-do list. You've got to do it. And, and, it, and it's, it's not easy. I know it's not. I live it, and you live it, and we're living it together. And I'm trying to encourage you now. If you're not living it, start living it. That life given to you is not some random occurrence because you're simply able. You are able, and from that ability, you were blessed with multiplication. We're talking primary cause and secondary causes here. I get the secondary cause element. I get it. You get it. The primary cause of that little life is God's hand of blessing. And you have to take care of them. Genesis 30, a little bit further in the, in the, in the book. We won't get there um, because we're just doing 1 through 11 for the next 10 years. But... Um, uh, but you know, if we were someday to go into Genesis 30, we'll see the same ethos, the same theology being taught all the way to Jacob and Rachel. Do you remember the instant, right? Because I'm trying to show you, this is understood for all of Christ's church from all ages, that if there is a little one, it's because God gave this little one to me. Not to you, not to you, not to you, not to you, to me. And I need to shepherd him well, her well. It's my responsibility, It's not just I happen to have a kid. This child is given to me from God. Uh, Rachel says, give me children. You remember she was upset with not having children. Give me children. And you remember Jacob's response. He was angry with Rachel. Why? His response is, am I God? You, You see, the idea is already there immediately. There can't be children without God. 
Just that there, if there is a child, it is from God. And you had better raise that child as that is absolutely without question true. Can't be just a little hellion running around the neighborhood. It's your child. And it needs to be raised well, confessionally well. No reason to run 10 yards off the sidewalk to stomp out a bumblebee. Chill. No reason. This isn't your earth. It's God's. Do you get that? Stop doing that. That's unnecessary. Well, I found it. It doesn't matter. It belongs to God, not you. So that they would cultivate a love relationship to other human beings. Have a sense of empathy. I can't just walk around doing this to everybody around me. No, you can't. You don't exercise rule over them. This sense of cultivation of the preciousness of life. Psalm 127, and I'll conclude. You know this text, verse 3. In the blessing of a union, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Not, not, from, not from union, yes, ability, but the, not the multiplication thereof. They're from the Lord. And he goes on, the fruit of the womb. It's, it's a fruit that comes from a womb. It's a sense of reward. It, it, it's a blessing. Finally, I'll end with this quote and, and one last comment. Calvin writes this. It's important as we conclude to keep it in mind. Speaking of the blessing here in the text is what he's addressing in verse 28a. And God blessed them. Calvin's comment in our concluding moment. This then is the result of that blessing, 28a. That we will know that God declared at the beginning that he wanted the human race to multiply. Pretty straightforward enough. He goes on to say, and that in our day and time, when he provides a lineage, when he provides a child, it is a special blessing he bestows on a father. A special blessing and treasure he bestows upon a mother. They together must acknowledge the child as being from him. And for which they must pay homage. How would we pay homage? What offering would we give back? Our diligence in raising them to love and honor him. Somebody needs a spanking. Give it to him. Somebody needs a hug. Give it to him. Somebody needs instruction. Give it to him. Someone needs time alone, give it to them. Someone needs to be with dad, be with them. Someone needs to be with mom, 
be with them. That in all things you'd raise them for God's glory. They're not random products of ability. They're fruits of a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.